Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Your Bibles ought to fall open to that place automatically by now. I want to talk to you about something the Lord put on my heart during prayer school, and that is believing to the end. Mark chapter 11, Jesus has cursed the fig tree, and, and the next morning they pass by that place, and the fig tree is dried up from the roots, and Peter calls it to remembrance. Uh, they, the disciples heard, Peter as well as the other disciples heard Jesus say to the tree, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And uh, as a result, the, um, uh, um, well, it's, it's implied, Jesus answers and makes an explanation, um, but he answers a question that's not asked. Peter just simply calls it to remembrance and said, Master, the fig tree which you cursed is, is withered away. And Jesus then explains what happened. He knows that, uh, uh, that Peter didn't understand what was happening, which is amazing to me. They've been, this is the last week that Jesus is here on the earth. It's the beginning of what's known as the Passion Week, the, uh, the week where he was crucified. They've been with this guy five years. How do they not know how this works? I'm sorry, they've been with him three years. I think I said five. They've been with him three years here on the earth in his earthly ministry. And they don't know how this works. How could they not know? How could they have missed that? Well, that, that gives us hope when we don't get what we need to get or should be getting as quickly, as quickly as we should. But nevertheless, Jesus explains, knowing that they didn't understand. I guess if Peter had understood, he wouldn't have drawn it to anybody's attention. He would have just said, well, there's that tree that Jesus cursed. It, it did what it was supposed to. He did what Jesus said. But instead, Jesus answers and says in verse 22, have faith in God. Now, the word that's translated, the preposition that's translated in is also translated throughout the scripture of. It's just as accurately translated, have faith in God or have the faith of God. One translation goes so far as to say, have the God kind of faith. Well, the faith of God would have to be the God kind, wouldn't it? Is there any other kind of faith God would have? It certainly wouldn't be weak faith. It'd be the God kind of faith. It's the kind of faith that is identified by God himself. And Jesus has indicated that not only has he just used the God kind of faith by simply speaking to the tree and cursing it, speaking words to it, saying, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. But not only that, he's telling the disciples that it's not exclusive to him because he's the son of God. He's telling them they can have the God kind of faith too. It started doing wonders for my faith and, and uh, development in faith years ago when I started saying that I have a measure of the God kind of faith. I went from there to saying I have the God kind of faith. See, I, I got away with saying I've got a measure of it because that kept me thinking, well, Jesus has got a lot and I've got a little. But faith is not measured in size. Faith is measured in strength. In other words, faith is measured in its ability or willingness on the part of the individual to stick to it till the end. Did you get that? See, so many times the devil will say, well, you don't have enough faith because he wants you to look at faith in terms of size. But the Bible very rarely ever talks about size. It talks about faith as a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed, but then grows up into the biggest tree where all the fowls of the air come and build a nest in and that kind of stuff. But that's really not even talking about size. It's saying even the smallest amount of faith can produce miraculously huge results. But the Bible talks a lot about weak faith versus strong faith. It talks about sincere faith, unfeigned faith. That's what that means. It means faith without hypocrisy. So Jesus said to the disciples, have the God kind of faith. 
have the God kind of faith. He put no limits whatsoever on how strong their faith could be. He put no limits on whatsoever on what their faith could produce. He said, here's what the God kind of faith will do for anybody that uses it. Have the God kind of faith. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, now you need to realize he's talking, to this, talking about this belonging to whosoever. Folks, whosoever has to mean everybody. Now, some will say, yeah, but that was just the apostles. He's just giving them specific instructions. Well, folks, do you remember what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world and gave his, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. If the whosoever of Mark 11.23 doesn't belong to me, then how can I say that the, Mark, that the whosoever of John 3.16 belongs to me? Now, you ever heard anybody argue that John 3.16 doesn't belong to everybody? Of course not. That whosoever means everybody. Well, then who does this whosoever mean? Jesus said in both. Jesus spoke both scriptures, made both statements. Did Jesus mean whosoever in John 3.16 but, but mean something other than that over here in Mark 11.23? No, it works for whosoever. In other words, it'll work for whosoever will take hold of it and work it. Just like salvation, just like the salvation that's promised in John 3, 16. It takes, it takes the individual taking hold of it and possessing it for himself. Jesus said, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. Now, has Jesus spoken to a mountain? Didn't he speak to a fig tree? What's he shift over talking about mountains for? Well, if Jesus had said, whosoever shall say unto this tree, then we would be left with some folks at least that say, well, this only works on trees. Jesus is not giving us a principle that works on any number of things. He's giving us something specific whenever you run into a a fig tree that's not producing fruit. But instead, Jesus uses an example that's bigger than a tree to show us that it'll work on anything that stands in your way. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart. We found this morning, if you were with us, we discovered this morning that the scripture identifies the heart as the spirit. The hidden man, the man on the inside. Paul calls him the inward man. Peter calls him the hidden man of the heart. He's hidden from the five physical senses and shall not doubt in his heart means shall not speak according to what he sees and feels shall not speak according to what he sees and feels. That, was, that would be the definition of doubting in your heart. Speaking according to the outward man, not the inward man. Have the God kind of faith. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, shall not change what he says, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. Notice what you're supposed to believe. Notice what the God kind of faith believes. It believes that his words will come to pass. Now, how in the world can we and why should we believe that? Because God created man in his image, an eternal spirit, and he gave man dominion. Now, the devil doesn't want you to know that you've got dominion, and he tries to run roughshod over you, especially before you became a Christian. He had a lot more authority in your life to do things at his will but once you became born again once you became part of the family of god a child of god you instantly gained regained the authority that jesus restored for us through his work on the cross 
There's way too little teaching, in my opinion, in the body of Christ about who we are in Christ and the authority that belongs to us. Most Christians want to give that authority over to God. Well, God's sovereign. God just does according to his will, according to his plan and his purpose. Well, that's true in a measure. But doesn't the Bible say that God wills for every man to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Well, then why isn't everybody saved? The Bible is real clear on what the will of God is concerning salvation or the salvation of the world. God wants everybody to be saved. And not only that, the Bible says that Jesus died for the whole world. Well, if that's God's will, why didn't it take place? Because God's not the one that decides. When God gave man authority, he's not an Indian giver. He didn't take it back upon himself. Man still has authority on the earth. If you get saved, it's because you choose to. God already chose for you to be. That's why he sent Jesus for you. If you receive your healing, it's going to be because you choose to. Jesus already did the work for you to be healed. But you have to take hold of it. So man's been restored to a place of authority. Jesus didn't go around saying, well, you know, it was, it's not like it was in the beginning. Oh, let me tell you what the Garden of Eden was like, fellas. God made man and put everything that he created under his authority, under his dominion. And until the devil gummed things up, man, this was a wonderful place. No, Jesus just went through life exercising authority. He just went through life exercising authority and he told the disciples to do the same thing. He's telling them then, not someday in the future after I'm raised from the dead, you can operate this way. He's telling them to do that now, then, at that point in time. The God kind of faith believes that his words have come to pass. Now, folks, we've got so much more than they had. They weren't born again. They were walking with Jesus in the flesh, but they, Jesus wasn't living inside of them. They had none of the Spirit of God except what Jesus delegated to them for a short period of time for a specific purpose. They had none of what you have. They weren't new creatures in Christ Jesus. They couldn't be. Jesus hadn't yet been to the cross. And so their ability to operate in the authority that Jesus is talking about was so much more limited than yours and mine. Now, I say limited. It would be limited by our lack of understanding. The authority that we have now is absolute in our own lives. But very few of us walk in that authority. And the reason for that is because we don't understand. We have limited understanding of what that authority entails and how to use it. That would certainly be true of the church world as a whole, wouldn't it? Looks to me like if somebody from the outside was looking at the church, trying to identify who's got authority on the earth, they're going, the church is going to be the last ones that they uh, would assume that has it. Most, uh, in addition to that, most of the church world talks about what the devil's doing in their lives. And so if you're going by their testimony, most people would assume that the devil's the one running everything. But then the church will say, but God's in control. The devil's been after me, but God's in control. I'm not even sure how that's supposed to fit together. But the last thing that somebody on the outside would assume is that the church has authority in the name of Jesus. Because very, very little is ever said about that. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. Don't change his words. Don't change what he says based on what he sees or feels. But shall believe from his heart, the hidden man on the inside. Believe from his heart, the man that's fed only by the word of God. Remember Jesus said, 
In Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The word of God is the only thing that can feed and fit your spirit. It's the only thing that can feed and fit your spirit. So if you're going to speak from your spirit, you're going to have to speak the word of God. It's the only thing that feeds you. It's the only thing that equips you. It's the only thing made in the universe and designed by God to fit your spirit. So the more you speak your, the word of God, say what the word of God says, no matter what the circumstances look like, which is exactly what Jesus is saying to do. He's saying, tell the mountain to be cast into the sea, be removed and cast into the sea, because the word of God says you have authority. Yeah, but it doesn't look like I've got authority, and I sure don't feel strong. Well, now we've got a choice. Are we going to say what we feel like, what it looks like, or are we going to say what the word says? That's what Jesus is talking about. So what's he supposed to do? Say to the mountain, speak to the mountain, speak to the circumstance. Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart or from his heart, the hidden man on the inside, that what he says will come to pass. Notice what Jesus said would be the end result. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, is there any stronger term that Jesus could use? He shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, it seems to me that if Jesus was the way that most of the church world thinks that he is, he would have put a lot of conditions on this. He would have said, now, whosoever shall say, you know, exactly what's in the line with God's plan and purpose, or whosoever shall quote the scripture exactly right, and make sure you don't get out there on the edge. But notice Jesus leaves it up to the individual to decide what he wants in his life. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you can go counter to what the Word says. I'm not saying that we can make confessions contrary to what the Word says and expect it to come to pass. That's not true. The authority that we have is based on God's revealed will, which is revealed in His Word. But Jesus makes no kind of of conditions on this whatsoever. He almost says it in such a way that the sky's the limit. Doesn't He? Whosoever... And whatsoever he saith, whosoever he shall say, and whatsoever he saith, he shall have whatsoever he saith. There is no stronger term in the English language that can be uh, uh, utilized than he shall have whatsoever he saith. We can put some adjectives on it. We can put an uh, emphasis on it with exclamation marks and punctuation and that kind of stuff, but you can't get any stronger statement. He shall have. He shall have. He shall have. Well, what shall he have? Whatsoever he saith. He goes further and tells us about the faith of God or the God kind of faith operating in prayer. Notice verse 23 doesn't say a word about praying. Verse 24 does, but not verse 23. He says you will have what you say if you meet the conditions. Now, verse 24, therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. When you pray, believe that you receive. Believe according to what you can see and feel. No, believe according to God's word that you receive. Why? Because God's word says you can have what you say. If you meet the conditions, you can have what you say. Therefore, I say unto you what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Again, that's the strongest statement that can be made. And you shall have them. And you shall have them. Now turn back with me to Mark chapter 4. 
this is one of the most important passages of Scripture, one of the most important messages that Jesus delivered and explanations of the message that he um, gave to the disciples during his earthly ministry. It's the parable of the sower sowing the word. I'm not going to take time to read the parable itself, but it, let's start ver- reading in verse 10 of Mark chapter 4. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked him of the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying understanding this parable is the key to understanding the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of things that are part of the kingdom of God. One of the things that Jesus said, really, you could look at anything and everything Jesus did here on the earth in his earthly ministry and identify what belongs to us as part of the kingdom of God. Jesus supernaturally provided for people. He multiplied loaves and fishes. He turned water into wine. He did all kinds of stuff to provide for people. He provided tax money for Peter and himself with a gold coin out of a, fish mouth, a fish's mouth. He provided for, for the disciples several times with a miracle boatload breaking, boatload sinking catch of fish. There were all kinds of things that Jesus did to provide for people. Well, that has to be part of the kingdom of God or else Jesus wouldn't have done it. Healing miracles must have been part of the kingdom of God because that's part of what he did too. Everything wasn't miraculous. Everything had a supernatural quality that Jesus did, but everything wasn't miraculous. The teaching that he did was part of the kingdom of God. Furthermore, Jesus sent the disciples out two by two ahead of him into the cities that he would go into later. And he said, go into those cities and if they'll receive you, heal the sick and say unto them, the kingdom of God has come to you. So the healing that they did, the healing of the sick that they did in those cities before Jesus ever got there had to be part of the kingdom of God too. So we could say this. We could say that if you understand this parable, you can understand the mystery of healing because it's part of the kingdom of God. We could say if you understand the principle of this parable, the meaning of this parable, then you can understand the mystery or it's given unto you to understand the mystery of provision, divine provision. Anything and everything that's part of the kingdom of God is mysterious to the world. But it's not intended to be mysterious to the children of God. It's not intended to be mysterious to God's family. Well, why is it mysterious? Why is this so hit and miss? Why do Christians worldwide have limited success when they pray? Because they don't understand the mystery of the kingdom. You understand this, the the meaning of this parable, you'll understand anything and everything there is about God and how he operates with man. Unto you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without... All these things are done in parables that seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven. In other words, God's saying, Jesus is saying, we don't want to make it so easy that these principles work for people that are outside the family. You're going to have to dig a little bit. You're going to have to do a little bit of work to understand these things. Now, what have the disciples done? Well, they left everything and followed him. So what is the work that we're supposed to do? What is the the digging around that we're supposed to do? Put the things of God first. This is not intended to be casual knowledge to be used and squandered on the lust of the flesh. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying we don't want it to belong to and we don't want other people to find out about it. We want this limited to those that the kingdom of God is for which includes those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives and put the things of God first. Then he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? Verse 13. How then will you know all other parables? 
Now, please notice he said two outstanding statements about this parable. It's the key to understanding the mystery of the kingdom of God, and it's the key to understanding every other parable. If you don't get this one, you're not going to know what any of them are about. Makes that pretty important, doesn't it? So then Jesus started explaining, verse 14, the sower sows the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. So he's talking about people. He's talking about the word of God and how people react to it. These are they which by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. The word receive here means to take hold of. But they have no root in themselves. One translation says they have no moisture. In other words, they don't keep watering it. They don't keep feeding on it. It's just a one-time thing for them. They have no root in themselves and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on which are and these are they which are sown on good ground. He's talking about four different types of people or four different reactions that people have to the word of God, and only one of the four produces anything. Twenty five percent. These are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it. This word receive means to accept nearer. Luke 8, 15, Luke's account of this, he translates it this way or uh, relates it this way. These are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and keep it. Well, if this word receive means, and it does from the Greek, it means to accept near. He's talking about take hold of something and not turn loose. These are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Jesus is saying that only one-third of 25% gets maximum yield. That's 8%. If these numbers hold true, if Jesus really meant what he was saying, if he used these uh, numbers on, on, uh, on purpose for a reason, then that means 8% of the people that hear the word that could change everything about their lives are going to get the best results. I don't know about you, but that makes me work harder to be in the 8%. I want to make sure that I get this. Now, notice what this the whole thing is about. The whole thing is about your attitude toward the Word and what the devil does to keep you from entering into it, to keep you from getting results. And in every case, the wayside, the stony ground, and the thorny ground. In the three grounds, the three types of people that don't produce anything in their lives, that don't get any results from the Word of God in their lives whatsoever, notice that the same cause is what keeps them from getting results. And that is the devil gets them distracted or the devil makes them turn loose of what they heard. He uses five different things. Now, the first the type of person, the wayside, they don't even take hold of it. They hear it. It says it's sown in their hearts. What that means is Jesus said in John six sixty three, the words that I speak unto you, they're spirit and life. They are spirit and they are life. So what this means is they have access to the word of God that can change anything and everything in their lives, but they never take hold. 
it goes in one ear and out the other. It's there. Potentially it has the power. But because they take no action toward it, then it doesn't even get into the ground. But in the other two types of ground, the stony ground and the thorny ground, notice what he uses. In the, among the, the, the stony ground, it says that affliction and persecution arise for the word's sake. People are offended. That means they turn loose of it, let go of the word, and it doesn't produce anything for them. Affliction is trouble, hard times. Persecution is people working against you. Notice the first two things that the devil will use to try to keep you from getting Bible results, getting, getting the results that the Bible says you can have. Now, there's nothing wrong with the, the, the seed. The seed's the same for the good ground as it is for the wayside. The seed is all the same. It's not what God wills for one person versus what he wills for another person. God wills the same thing in, for everybody, and that is for the word to produce results or fruit. But we decide that's the whole purpose of this parable. That's the whole meaning of this thing. It's man's attitude toward the word that makes the difference, not God's attitude toward man. God's attitude toward man is revealed in the fact that he gave man his word that can change anything and everything about his life. They can change any circumstance and any situation. God's already on record by saying, here's what my attitude is. Here's what my will is toward you. Here's my word. Jesus just identified that if we say speak to the problems and believe the right things and keep saying the right things, we'll have whatever we say. He furthermore identified that whatever we ask when we pray, believe that we receive those things because we have authority, because we're in relationship with God, and we'll have those things. So it's not what God wills toward man, it's what man is willing to do toward the Word. Folks, this is something that, that if people would get a hold of, it would change and revolutionize the church. Psalm 107 verse 20 says, God sent his word and healed them. Talking about mankind. God sent his word and healed us. It does not say that God causes you to have feelings of being healed. It does not say that God causes thoughts, brings thoughts to you, and the right thoughts will make you well. It doesn't say that God brings the right feelings to you or gives you goosebumps and the goosebumps heal you. He said, God sent his word and healed you. Well, why in the church world at large, why do most people in the church world fail to receive their healing? Because they don't understand the mystery of the parable. They don't understand that the, that the results, the healing results we get or receive or don't receive has to do with one and only one thing, and that is our attitude toward the word, not God's attitude or God's will toward man. And that's why Jesus is saying, that understanding these truths is the key to the mystery of everything about the kingdom of God. The key is the man's, man's attitude toward the word. So what does the devil do? Well, with the stony ground, people that aren't willing to water the word and keep it watered and keep it moist. Remember when uh, Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he's talking about uh, his preaching and Apollos ministering there. He said, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Well, what did he do? He preached the word when he was there. What did Apollos do? He came, on, came after Paul and taught the same truths that Paul had preached to get them saved and who they are in Christ and what belongs to us in, in the Lord. And Paul, by the Holy Ghost, called that watering the word. So the more we speak the word, the more we meditate on the word, the more we study the word, that's watering what was originally planted. 
But not everybody's willing to do that. And that's the whole point. Some people's attitude is that, well, I heard the word and it sounds great. Those are the results I want. I want healing for my body. I want this sickness to leave my body, but they don't continue in the word. They don't continue to water it. They don't continue to speak it. They don't continue to hear the word so that faith is built and grows stronger and stronger. And then trouble comes. And that trouble knocks them on their rear end. Then people start saying, well, you know, you can't believe that faith stuff. The idea that speaking the word of God is going to do the job. You don't want to be one of those nuts. Part of those cult people. Affliction and persecution causes a lot of people to turn loose. So what happens when you turn loose? Nothing. You get no results. The word doesn't produce in your life. Why? Because God sent his word and healed us. Turn loose of the word, there's no healing to get. But what about the third kind of ground? The third kind of ground is the thorns. Those are the thorny ground. Those are the, where the word was sown among thorns. Notice what the devil uses to try to get them to turn loose. The cares of this world. Well, we all have those, don't we? But we have to take the right attitude toward them and keep the word in its proper place. We're going to get results. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Some people want to use the word to try to get rich quick. The Bible says a man that does that won't be innocent. The word is not a get-rich-quick scheme. The word is a lifestyle. The Bible talks about God blessing you little by little, year after year, day after day, adding to you, prospering you as your soul prospers. So the devil uses money to get a lot of people off track. Cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust. The word lust here just means desires. Desires for other things enters in and chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. What does that mean? That means it takes a higher priority. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things take a higher priority in their lives than the word of God. And when the word of God stops being first place in your life, it does not produce results. So the attitude of this people, this type of ground, identified by the thorny ground, is that they let the word slip. They don't turn their back on it. It doesn't say that they hate God and decide, well, I don't want to be saved anymore. It just says they let the things of the world take a higher place of priority than the word of God. And the word of God will only produce for you if you keep it first place in your life. You let other things become more important to you than what God's word says about healing, you're not going to receive your healing. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, you may not like that, but that's what he said. But these are they which are on, uh, sown where the word is sown among good ground. Such as hear the word and receive it, to accept it near. In other words, they keep it, as Luke said, Luke 8, 15. They keep it. They hold fast to it. They keep believing to the end. They don't let affliction bother them. doesn't say that they don't have affliction that comes. They don't let it distract them. They don't let it make them turn loose. Yeah, but what about people talking about the church they're going to? They don't let that bother them either. Why? Because the word is more important than what other people think. What about the cares of this world? We've all got things that we have to care about and all, all have things that we have to deal with. That's just part of life. But you keep it in your proper place. It's proper place. You don't let it take the place of the word. 
You don't get so busy that you forget to renew your mind and meditate in the word. You don't let it affect your relationship with God through his word. You keep things in proper perspective. What about the deceitfulness of riches? Well, there's all kinds of people. I could give you story after story until dawn and still have more stories to go. About people that got turned away by job promotions. Business opportunities. And oh, don't worry, Pastor Mike. We're not going to let us take it, take, us, take it away from, take us away from church or take us away from the word. Okay. And it does time and time and time again. Folks, the devil doesn't mind you having enough money to survive. As long as you're not getting it from God. He doesn't care. Matter of fact, he'll dangle some things in front of you. What about the lust of other things? Well, for goodness sake, there are a million different things that you can get involved in in this day and age. I've never seen the river or a lake house bring anybody closer to God. I'm not saying it couldn't, but I've never seen it happen yet. Same thing. Pastor Mike, we're going to get us a place on the river. But don't worry. We're going to go up there uh, on Fridays and Saturdays, and we'll be back in time for Sundays. Okay. Never works. And once you start getting pulled away a little bit, getting pulled away a little bit more is easy. Now, folks, I'm not saying that church is the issue because it's not. But the word is. The word is the issue. And I found this. I found that people that have a great appreciation for the word have a great appreciation for God's people. They accept the word of God that says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And so much the more as the day of Jesus appearing approaches. These things go hand in hand. So the whole story, the whole purpose of the parable is talking about man's attitude toward the word. You want to produce results? Receive the word. Hold on to it. And don't let anything take you away from it. Now, Jesus continues to talk. Notice it says, let's skip down to verse 24. Jesus said unto them, take heed what you hear. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. You can't hang around unbelief and not have unbelief rub off on you. It just does. So if you find yourself in in situations where there is a lot of unbelief or, or whatever the case might be, get yourself back into the word just as quick as you can. Replace that unbelief with what the word says. Fellowship with people that believe like you do. There'll be a strength and encouragement to you. So Jesus said, take heed what you hear. With what measure you meet or hear, it shall be measured to you. He's very simply saying the same thing that we've talked about before. The attention you give to the word will be the results that you get. And unto you that hear shall more be given. For he that hath ears to hear, in other words, To him shall be given, and he that hath not from him shall be taken away, even that which he hath. You stop listening to the word, and you'll lose everything that you had to begin with. Now, he's not talking about material possessions, although I've seen that happen too. But he's talking about you'll lose the faith that you started with. It's an amazing thing. We've been doing this now for almost 30 years. Pastoring the church, we started almost 30 years ago, 29 and a half years ago, almost exactly. And it's an amazing thing. Over the years, you see people come and go and people that are, that are with you and you think they're going to be with you forever and something happens. They get disgruntled or, or offended or whatever the case is and they leave. And it's an amazing thing over the years. I could give you the, the names of 10 or 12 people 
that were so strong in faith at one time. Now you talk to them or see them post on Facebook or whatever the case is, and you wonder if they ever knew God at all. Now, don't get me wrong. They're still in churches, but they're in churches that don't preach the word. They're in churches that preach against what they used to believe, and it's amazing. I mean, it's like they turned into different people. Now, folks, the word will turn you into a different person for the positive, but you leave the word, and it'll turn you into a different person negatively. And it's such a sad thing. I see some people post on Facebook, never saying a word to me. I'm not their judge. But it's such a sad thing because you see what they say about their kids being sick and flu season and flu shots and all this other kind of stuff, vaccines and all this other kind of stuff that everybody's concerned about. And it's like, did they ever know that healing would belong to them? I know they did. I was there when they were making confessions of faith. I was there when their kids were getting healed. What happened? Just exactly what Jesus said. You lose ears to hear, you'll lose even the faith that you started with. The faith that the Word of God produced in your life to begin with and in your heart to begin with, that'll dribble out little by little until it's like it was never there at all. Jesus said in verse 26, and he said, So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring and grow up and he knows not how. For the earth brings forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, and after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately you put us in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, what's he saying? He's saying if you keep the seed planted and take care of the seed of the word in your heart by giving attention to it, it will produce. You don't even have to know how it's going to work. I take great comfort in that because there's a lot of things I don't know how that's going to work. I just know it will. Now, all the time the devil's telling me it's not going to work, 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 it can't work, it's impossible, it's not going to work. I like what Brother Hagin used to say about that. He said, some of the greatest faith victories I've ever won were with the devil screaming, it's not going to work in my ear the whole time. But Jesus very simply said, if you keep the word planted, like you'd keep seed planted in the ground, wouldn't it be stupid to go dig up the seed that you planted yesterday to see how it's doing? But that's what a lot of people do within the area of faith. They check their bodies. They check their circumstances. They check the conditions to see if anything's changed. And whether or not their physical circumstances, what they can see and feel has changed, tells them or influences them about whether or not the Word's at work. The implication in all of these things is to plant the Word of God, the seed of God's Word in your heart, take care of it, attend to it, and leave it alone. Hold on to it, in other words. Continue your profession of faith. Turn with me over to, my, uh, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see two verses of Scripture here. Verse 23 and then verse 34, I think it is. I believe Paul is the author of this book. Writing the things to the, to the Jews that he's been preaching to the Gentiles. Notice in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, he said, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Now, the implication there, the fact that he says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith, the implication is something's going to try to take your confession away from you. Something's going to try to influence you to stop saying what the word says. Well, what is that? Well, Jesus just identified five things in the thorny ground and the, the stony ground and the thorny ground 
affliction, persecution, the cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things. He says, resist that kind of stuff. Resist anything the devil uses. Resist circumstances. Resist the devil's thoughts. Resist everything that will change your confession. Remember, that's what Jesus said. Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. We could say it this way, and shall hold fast his profession of faith. Means the same thing. Not doubting his heart means to hold fast your profession of faith without wavering. Means exactly the same thing. So Paul said, by the Holy Ghost, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Means you can't say, can't say the word sometimes and speak unbelief the other time. But without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Now notice in verse 35, he said, cast not away therefore your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. Well, what's our confidence? Our confidence is in the word of God. If your confidence is in any other thing, you don't have a sure foundation. Remember, Jesus told the story about the the man that built his house on the rock versus the man that built his house on the sand. The man that built his house on the rock had confidence because he was on an unshakable foundation. That's the word of God. That's what Paul is talking about here by the Holy Ghost. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Well, if he tells you not to cast it away, the implication there is something's going to try to make you turn loose of it. Let go of your confidence in the word. So he just said to hold fast the profession of your faith. In other words, don't let anything change what you're saying in line with the word without wavering. And then secondly, he says, don't lose your confidence. Now, what in the world would cause us to lose our confidence? Affliction, persecution, cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, lust of other things. Sometimes just time. Sometimes just the passage of time is designed to make you, to influence you, to make you turn loose of the word. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward, for you have need of patience. Folks, patience is, in my opinion, one of the most misunderstood subjects in the Bible. You have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. In other words, you might produce good fruit. The word will produce fruit, uh, the promise that it uh, has made to you. It will be realized. In other words, you shall have whatsoever you say. Patience is most often looked at as just the passage of time, just holding on. But the word patience means constant expectancy. Patience is not passive. Most people think that we're just waiting for God to move, waiting for God's word to come to pass. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what patience is. Patience is constant expectancy. Now, what you expect, you speak. What you expect, you speak. Because you expect it. Patience has everything to do with the continued confession of the believer. Everything to do. Everything to do with it. Now I want you to, I know I'm out of time. Let me show you one example. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Let me show you how the devil works. One of the things the Bible says is that we're not ignorant of of Satan's devices. Well, we shouldn't be. Too many Christians are, it seems. But we shouldn't be ignorant of how he works. How does he work? He brings thoughts to our minds. That's why the Bible says to cast down imaginations and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God or against God's word. 
bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of the word of God. The devil has only one way to operate against you, and that is through the mind. Now, what about physical circumstances? Yeah, he brings those to you, but those are intended to influence your thinking. Because if he can get a hold of your thought life, then he can influence your will. He can make you use your authority against God's word rather than for God's word or in agreement with God's word. Let me show you an example of that. Matthew, or Matthew chapter 14. Uh, this is where Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes and feeds the 5,000. Let's start reading in verse 22. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship to go before him into the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spoke unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said unto him, Come. Now, folks, we can get on to Peter for a lot of things. But one thing I like about this guy is Peter understood that whatever Jesus is doing, I can do too. All I need is for him to give me the word. Whatever Jesus does, I can do too. Peter challenged Jesus to let him do the same thing he was doing, which was walking on the water. Now, what did Peter know was the key to being able to do something that's miraculous? The word. Bid me come to thee on the water. Say the word. If you don't say the word, I have no chance. That's what Peter understood. That's what Peter understood. That's why I don't get why in Mark chapter 11, he didn't understand Jesus cursing the fig tree. He heard him curse the fig tree the day before. Why has he forgotten that? Why has that slipped his mind? Does, is, his, is his thinking like ours is so often? It's so narrow that we think, well, it'll work here, but it won't work over there. I don't have an answer, folks. But Peter understood something that would revolutionize most Christians' lives, and that is all you need is the Word of God and nothing is impossible. That's what Peter shows. Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. All I need is you to say the Word, and I'll walk on the water too. What does Jesus say? No, my son, this is reserved for the, for the Son of God. You don't know who I am. You don't know that I'm the one that does miracles, and you can't. No, Jesus said, okay, come. One word, come. What was the result of Peter acting on that one word? And he walked, when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, if you stop the story right there, we would have to say, wow, look at Peter. But the rest of the story makes us say, Peter, bless your heart. But folks, let me suggest something. Until you walk on the water... Let's don't give him such a hard time. We can learn from his experience, but he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He's walking on the water just as surely as Jesus is walking on the water. No difference between the two. And notice the result, the supernatural, the miraculous occurrence takes place not because Peter is a disciple, not because he is intended to become one of the apostles, one of the most famous of the apostles, but because Jesus said the word, come. The power is in the word. 
Not in who Peter is. If it was in who Peter was, Peter wouldn't have had to say, tell me to come. He would say, wow, Jesus, that looks fun. Never thought of that. I'm coming too. Because after all, I'm one of the chosen ones. I'm one of the three closest ones to you. You've got great plans for me. It's not who Peter is. It's the power of the word. Your healing is not dependent on somebody with a special anointing. He sent his word and healed you. Now, you can wait for somebody with a special anointing if you want to. I hope that works for you. You don't have a guarantee of that, but you do have a guarantee of healing in the word. But again, it comes down to your attitude toward the word, not God's attitude towards you. So he came when, he, when Peter was come down out of the ship. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw, everybody say saw. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. Can I ask you a question? When did the wind begin to blow? Isn't the wind blowing in verse 24? But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. The wind didn't just come up when Peter got out on the water. The wind was blowing before he ever decided to get out. Now, why didn't Peter, if the wind is the issue, why didn't Peter say, now, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come to, to you on the water. Tell me to come and do something about this wind so I can walk. The wind was not an issue when he said, bid me come to you on the water. Why is the wind an issue now that he's out there? It's not. The circumstance of the wind, which was contrary. Luke's translation of this, Luke's account of this says it was a mega storm. I'm not sure what a mega storm is, but it sounds big and bad. That's what the Greek words that he uses is. It was a mega storm of wind. I want you to notice something. The wind being contrary did not stop Peter from walking on the water. Why now does he look at the wind, see how strong it is, and get afraid? He's already walking on the water. Folks, what I want you to see here is what the devil does to try to get you, to try to rob you of giving attention to the word. He's trying to distract Peter with something that was already taking place that had not stopped him from experiencing a miracle to begin with if the wind was the issue he never would have walked in the water to go to jesus but it wasn't the wind is never an issue the circumstances are never the issue the issue is what will you allow to influence your thinking and your action and your speech when he saw the wind boisterous he was afraid and beginning to sink. Now, I love this phrase. I believe these words were chosen specifically by the Holy Ghost. I'm still waiting for somebody to explain to me what it means to begin to sink. I know what sinking is. I can experience that by just stepping off the edge of the pool into my own pool in the backyard. I know what sinking is. Sinking is dropped like a rock. What does beginning to sink mean? That means he started lowering down into the water. Now, here's what I want you to see. When he allowed himself to be moved by fear, he started off being moved only by the word of Jesus, which was come. That's all Jesus said was one word, come. He didn't preach him a sermon. He didn't explain to him the dynamics of walking on the water. He said one word to him. He said, come. And that was sufficient for Peter to walk on the water to go to Jesus. 
But something changed in Peter. Didn't change in the word. Word doesn't change. Jesus didn't change. But Peter changed. What changed about Peter? What changed about Peter was what he had confidence in. He began to gain more confidence in the wind and the fear that that wind caused in his, in his thoughts than he had in the word. He could have answered the wind and said, wow, it's stronger out here than I thought that it was, but it's not stopping me from walking on the water to Jesus. I'm going to keep going. But he didn't. He saw the wind. Maybe a wave splashed over him. Something influenced his thinking. Something influenced his attitude. And what I mean by that is something influenced his attitude toward the word. He did not stop and, and consider this and say, well, no matter what the wind is doing, no matter how high the waves are, no matter what it looks or feels like out here, the word come is sufficient for me to walk on the water. The word come is, is sufficient for me to continue to walk on the water to Jesus. He could have done that. But something, we know what that something was, the circumstances affected his attitude toward the world or toward the word of God. That's the way the devil uses things in the world to try to keep you, to get you to turn loose of the word. We have to all admit he's experiencing a miracle and unless, from the devil's point of view, unless the devil can get him to turn loose of the word that he's operating on already, he's going to experience a miracle that's going to be known forever, everywhere. That Peter walked on the water just like Jesus did. But what I want you to see, folks, is the devil did not have the power to make him sink. He only had the power to influence his attitude. So Peter began to sink. I like how one person said it. His faith left him by degrees. His faith left him by degrees. His faith in the word that caused him to experience the miracle of walking on the water left him by degrees. That's what the devil tries to do, folks. That's what every circumstance, that's what every pain in your body, that's what every example of physical uh, things, things that you can see and things you can feel, that's what they're all about. They're about affecting your attitude toward the word. But it's your choice. Jesus can't do one thing about Peter's sinking. Not one thing. Now, he did rescue him, but he can't do anything about whether Peter walks on the water and experiences a miracle or sinks. That's out of Jesus' hand. Peter saw the wind boisterous, and he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Notice what he said. He said, why did you doubt? Now, folks, remember where we started over in Mark chapter 11. Jesus is explaining the, the principle that caused the fig tree to dry up from the roots. Have faith in God or have the God kind of faith. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And here's the phrase, here's the condition. And shall not doubt in his heart. And shall not doubt in his heart. And shall not doubt in his heart. But shall believe in his heart. We could even say and continue to believe in his heart. That those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Now what has Peter said? Peter said, you tell me the word, and I'll walk on the water too. Lord, bid me come unto you. Say the word, and I'll do the same thing you're doing. I love this about Peter. I wish I was more like this. Peter challenged Jesus to challenge him. 
Very few of us want to be challenged. But that was the characteristic of Peter that I think, at least in part, was what made Peter so loved by Jesus. Peter is willing to do anything. Now, he jumps out too quickly about some things and gets in the middle of it and says, "Uh uh-oh. But there's no fear in him to begin with. He's willing to charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun. He challenged Jesus to challenge him. I love that. I think that's something for us to aspire to. And so what did he do? He said, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. The implication is to give me the word and I'll walk too. Right on top of that water just like you're doing. He understood that whatever Jesus did, he could do too. So Jesus says the word. But something changed. What changed? The circumstances affected his emotions that caused him to stop walking. That's the only thing that could have happened, folks. If Peter had not stopped acting on the one word, come, it wouldn't have mattered what he thought. It wouldn't have mattered what he felt. It wouldn't have mattered what thoughts were running through his mind or what emotions he was feeling. The only thing that could possibly stop the word of God from producing the miracle results that were already taking place was him to cease acting on the word that he was given. And the only word that that was said was come. He stopped walking. And that's when he began to sink. So what did Jesus say? Jesus rescued him and said, Oh, thou of little faith, why did you doubt? How does he know he doubted? Because he stopped walking and began to sink. He stopped walking and began to sink. Now the good news is they both walked on the water back to the ship. So Peter got exactly what he said in this story. He said, tell me to come to you and I'll walk on the water. And he did and he did. Jesus said so. Jesus said come and Jesus did. And Peter walked on the water. When Peter began to sink, he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus did save him. He got exactly what he said in every part of this story. What caused the miracle to stop working in his life? He changed his attitude toward the word. What if his attitude toward the word hadn't changed? He would have walked out there to Jesus and walked back to the, bit, to the boat and had something on the rest of the disciples for the rest of their lives. He could have said, well, John may be the disciple that Jesus loved, but I've walked on the water. He could have experienced one of the greatest miracles recorded in the Bible if he hadn't changed his attitude toward the word. I wonder, I've seen people throughout the years, I've seen people give up on their faith, let go before the answer comes. I've always wondered how close they were when they turned loose. And folks, I've got to tell you, there's been some things where I've wanted to from every part of my being, my feelings, my emotions, my uh, my thought life, every part of me said, give up, quit. It's not going to work. Give up. And, and at least in one case, the only thing that kept me going is I thought, what if I'm just one day away? I'm not willing to get this close and turn loose. And I went through that week after week after week saying, what if I'm just one day away? And eventually the answer came. I've always wondered that about people. What if they were just one day away? What if they had known they were just one day away? Would they have still turned loose? I'm not willing to let go, folks. Never give up. Because Jesus said, if you meet the conditions of saying what you believe and holding fast to your profession, you shall have whatsoever you say. 
you shall have whatsoever you say.